Look West will continue its California for Black Lives series soon. Now, as the Assembly Education Committee holds its first hearing since the state's schools were closed down by the coronavirus, we bring you a special episode on California schools. This is Look West, a podcast from California's Assembly Democrats. I'm Pablo Espinosa with Look West. On Friday, March 6, to the surprise of many, the Elk Grove Unified School District, south of Sacramento, became the first school district in California and among the first in the country to close its doors to stop the spread of the coronavirus. The bottom line is the decision was made uh, with the health and safety of our kids and staff um, at the forefront of the decision. So I'll be honest, I actually slept better that first night after we made the decision um, than I did um, the previous night uh, when I thought we were going back to school and I just had um, visions of um, El Grove Unified being responsible for the spread of the virus across um, other schools um, and of other communities. That's Chris Hoffman, El Grove superintendent. Okra School Board member Bobby Singh Allen believes shuttering the schools was the best thing to do for the district's 63,000 kids, their families, and the entire community. I absolutely know in my heart that we did the right thing, and Chris Hoffman, our superintendent, is a true example of a leader. Within a week, the LA Unified, the San Diego Unified, and dozens of other school districts follow suit. Millions of children and their parents discover what distance learning is. Like virtually all the other California parents, Assembly members Patrick O'Donnell and Rebecca Bauer Cahan gain a new appreciation for teachers. If I could say one thing that is good that has come out of this is that it has made people more aware of what teachers do on a daily basis. It has been te- it has given some families some positive time to interact with with each other, and some parents to see what content their students are learning. But it hasn't been been easy. And I haven't heard one parent, not one parent has come up to me and said, wow, I want to start homeschooling now. I appreciate their teachers. I've always appreciated their teachers, but I think we all appreciate teachers even more now that we've been doing it alongside them for months. And it wasn't just connecting the students to their classrooms. Schools needed to continue to provide meals for hundreds of thousands of students. Schools have become the modern day soup kitchen. And not just for our students, but for our parents as well. In fact, schools are feeding entire families. And um, it's been a Herculean challenge, and we need to acknowledge those workers that have put themselves and continue to put themselves on the line to interact with the public to get those meals out. Not always with an ample supply of PPE, I might add, uh, yet our classified staff, by and large across the state of California, has responded in a very noble fashion and has fed many people living in the state of California. We always don't see it. We might always not know what's going on, But there are a lot of people who are using our schools as their kitchen because they have no option. Assemblymember Christina Garcia, a math teacher prior to being elected to the state assembly, says connectivity is a big issue. But deeper, more complex problems must also be addressed. What about the child who lives at home with five other siblings and they don't have a quiet space to stop and think? Right. What about the kid who relied on the emotional support from something outside their household because there's trauma or abuse at home uh, and school provided that for them? What about the kid that needed the security that they were guaranteed a meal no matter what and that's been taken away from them? Pushing the limits of their ability to help their students in the short and long term 
Oak Grove School Board member Singh Allen said school districts are facing huge budget cuts because the state has an estimated $54 billion deficit. We're barely surviving on um, 2008 levels um, during the, the previous recession. We, we still haven't been fully funded from that. And so now further cuts to public education frightens me. It frightens me most for those vulnerable communities where the achievement gap is already too big. Superintendent Hoffman says federal support is crucial to keep schools from making drastic cutbacks or for some sinking into bankruptcy. This is absolutely um, the opportunity for the federal government um, to step into this space um, that has been created. Uh, they have the, uh, the authority um, to do this. Uh, now they need to have the will to do it. Um, and it, it, it is the answer. This is an investment that we're asking for. It's not a bailout. We're asking for an investment to be able to keep what's in place in place as we're being asked to do more than we've ever been asked to do. Luke West spoke with Assemblymembers O'Donnell, Bauer, Cahan, and Garcia to learn more about the massive impact the coronavirus crisis is having on our schools, our children, and our communities. We'll start with a voice from the trenches, Elk Grove Unified Trustee Bobby Singh Allen. With you, it's an interesting conversation because you're not just going to talk to us as an elected official and a school board member uh, who has been working a lot, I know, first, secondhand. Um, <laughs> at the same time, also, you are a mom and a mom of a young man who is graduating uh, but not getting a graduation ceremony. How has, has, have those personas sort of dealt with this situation? You know, I'm wearing my mom hat. I have a graduating senior, and it's, it's hard for me, maybe more, more so than him um, as a parent, because as parents, we look forward to these milestones when they're born. You sort of imagine all of the different uh, life, uh, those little milestones that they reach uh, when, they're, when they're babies. And this being a, a big one is that transition into manhood of leaving his childhood behind and not being able to participate in that. Not, you know, I know that I'm sure I'm one of hundreds of thousands of grieving parents who will miss out on that opportunity. And more specifically, as a school board member, I had the privilege two years ago of handing um, my son, my eldest, his graduating diploma. And it was a very special moment that uh, school board members, if they have kids that are graduating, um, get to participate in. And so I was so looking forward to doing that for my youngest as well. So, but it is what it is. And that putting it on your school board member hat, uh, uh, yeah. what was it like for you all uh, at the school board when this decision was upon you guys? Sure. You know, being the first to do something comes with its own set of challenges because there's not a playbook for this. You are leading the way, if you will. And so I believe we actually might've been in the, the first one in the country, but we had a very unique set of circumstances. And I think the superintendent did the right thing. And that was ensuring the safety and security of our students, our staff, the teachers, and, and, and even families. Because if you have potentially infected families that can then spread um, those germs more widely, then you have to err on the side of caution, regardless of the, the pushback that you're gonna get. You were talking earlier that there's no script for this, but in a way you kind of 
wrote a little bit of a prescript for everybody else to follow. That's right. It was just days later that you started to see the other dominoes fall and the other dominoes being other schools uh, deciding to close as well because they saw some of the same information that we had and understood the gravity of the situation. Um, we made the right decision. There isn't a playbook, but the playbook, if you factor in doing the best that you can with the information that you have at that moment in time and include the necessary um, stakeholders to get to your decision-making, the health department, which we consulted, the, or your colleagues, the other bargaining units, we included the most important people in coming up with the right decision for our school district. And how difficult is it now? Because now, I mean, you guys are crafting the budget. July 1st <laughs> is the first, first day of the fiscal year. Yeah. $54 billion deficit and, and in, a, in, a, in an absolute uncertainty as to what the federal government, as to whether the federal government would do what everybody believes is their duty to do. So right. you're facing making difficult decisions that will affect precisely these people that you guys love. Right. Tuesday, when we had our school board meeting, it was the worst budget presentation in the almost nine years that I've served on the, as a school board member. It was very sad to get that report. And my concern is, you know, with the, with the governor's budget and the May, in the May revise, those numbers are too challenging to deal with because they're, the devastation is so real. And we're asked to cut 10%. Um, because the governor has cut 10% in, in the budget. How do we cut 10%? Further cuts to public education frightens me. It frightens me most for those vulnerable communities where the achievement gap is already too big. This pandemic and is going to widen that even more. We're talking about our African-American communities, our immigrant uh, populations, specifically our special education um, students. What's going to happen frightens me. So the May Revise was written in a way that it specifically says that some of those cuts will go away if the federal government backfills what we feel they need and it is their responsibility to backfill. Right. But as you well know, they say that they're not going to, quote, bail out states. Right. Do you accept the term bailing out or what would you tell the folks at the federal government? I, I reject that because this should be treated as a nat national disaster. This is not a bailout. This is responding to a national disaster. COVID-19 is a national disaster that is hurting real people in real time. And that is not a red state or a blue state issue. It is not a Democrat or Republican issue. The concurrent challenge also is reopening. Uh, yeah. How is that going to happen? There is absolutely no agreement on what that's going to look like. Um, all, what the one thing that we have in common is that we want it to be a safe place. The last thing I want to do is make you know is is to send children to school where it's not safe, where we don't have the requisite staff not only to keep the schools clean, but making sure that even our our teachers that may have pre-existing conditions or our students' families. I mean, there's a lot of things to factor in. It's just not an easy fix. It's going to take everybody working together to come up with the best plan um, to reopen our schools safely. That is the most important criteria, reopen safely. 
Assemblymember Patrick O'Donnell is the chair of the Assembly Education Committee. Thank you, Assemblymember. I appreciate your taking a little bit of time to help us out with this. So uh, let's just start with how we got to this point. Um, schools are a reflection of society, and they were the first. They were the first stop uh, when it came to like a reaction to the coronavirus crisis. Um, take us back to how those days were when the decisions were being made by local districts about closing schools. Well, schools are always a reflection of current events. And what happened in what, about mid-March? We saw some things happening around the state and then we saw folks start to react. And I think it really came on strong when LA Unified and San Diego Unified uh, in a very rapid fashion one morning announced that they would be closing by the end of that week, I believe it was. They announced on Wednesday that they would be closing on the Friday. And when that happened, um, districts across the state, by and large, followed. And as a parent, I saw it as a, as a parent of two, two kids in public school, uh, as a teacher still, um, and one who was in contact with many folks who run schools. I was hearing chatter out there, especially once LA Unified and San Diego made their decisions that they were going to follow. But um, once schools started to close, they made that decision. It was my job to jump into support mode. How do I support them getting closed rapidly, but also ramping up to continue to meet the news of their students? Uh, because in a very short time, uh, school districts reached out to families and said, hey, here's the plan. I can speak to my experience in Long Beach. Uh, just the next week, I, I drove by a high school, was at a high school where there were 1,200 people online getting uh, devices to use at home to communicate with the school, communicate with their teachers and engage in learning. Uh, some school districts just were emphasizing, let's just get this going as quickly as possible, even though not everybody's going to be at par level of instruction, while others said, well, you know, let's just kind of slow down just a little bit because we want to ensure that all kids get the same level of instruction, including children with disabilities. I'm sure you might have heard that. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, a lot of different dynamics in this issue. There, there are legislative statute dynamics, stat, dynamics built into statute. There's dynamics built into court cases. Uh, there's, there's, there's local district policy. There's state law and there's federal law. So why don't I just jump to the special ed uh, piece right away? Uh, there was a lot of fear on districts across the state because there actually were a lot of threats made from what I've heard. Uh, that they were going to get sued because they did not follow a student's IEP, Individualized Education Plan. And in those IEPs, sometimes you'll have uh, requirements for a district that will require a student to have a one-on-one -on -one aid inside of a classroom, meaning beside that student sits an aid while they are going through the lesson. But we know that in a pandemic, that's not possible. So we, they could not meet the tenets of the federal law, and that's built into federal law, the IEP, and the associated requirements in an IEP. So again, a lot of fear that districts are going to get sued, so they're holding back, trying to get some guidance from the federal level. Uh, the state really can't give guidance on federal law, and then it's our opinion, but the, the, the federal government has really the, the force to do that, and really didn't choose to engage on the issue. So it left a lot of districts hanging out there, thus a lot of students hanging out there. Some districts didn't want to move forward because of their fear of lawsuits with any student, right? If you're going to go serve non-special ed students and special ed students don't get served to their IEP level, will you get sued is the real question districts have and actually continue to face today. So that's a huge dynamic that, um, that, that, that districts are still dealing with. And the federal government still has not fixed 
And I don't know how you fix it. I don't have the solution, but it's difficult in a distance learning environment to follow the tenets of every IEP. Another huge challenge uh, was school meals. Um, I guess many people didn't realize that the, the level of engagement of schools in making sure that a significant number of children are in our communities um, get the only meals that they get in the morning or afternoon. Yeah, absolutely. So schools have become the modern day soup kitchen and not just for our students, but for our parents as well. In fact, schools are feeding entire families. And um, it's been a Herculean challenge, and we need to acknowledge those workers that have put themselves and continue to put themselves on the line to interact with the public to get those meals out. Not always with an ample supply of PPE, I might add, uh, yet our classified staff, by and large across the state of California, has responded in a very noble fashion and has fed many people living in the state of California. We always don't see it. We might always not know what's going on, but there are a lot of people who are using our schools as their kitchen because they have no option. Some of the awakening for many of us in the community has taken place during this pandemic. One of those is that while we always appreciated the work of teachers, I don't think that unless we were educators married to one, uh, we didn't really quite understand how great of a work they do and what it takes to educate not one or two, but 20, 30 kids. Um, how do you, th what, what kind of positive impact do you think or do you hope this sort of awakening will have once we sort of turn the page one day, hopefully soon on, on this? Well, I think uh, people are coming to realize is it's it's probably easier to teach somebody else's kid than it is your own kid. <laughs> um, I've heard a lot of uh, folks who will say, wow, I didn't realize the challenges. And that's not just challenges associated with uh, teaching the content, but it's also the social and interactive aspect of children not always being as, uh, uh, I don't want to use the res res word respectful but uh, or compliant, but uh, responsive, how about that, as they are to their teacher. So it's been interesting for families. I think it's been very educational for them. I think it's, been, it's actually, if I could say one thing that is good that has come out of this is that it has made people more aware of what teachers do on a daily basis. It has, been te it has given some families some positive time to interact with, with each other and some parents to see what content their students are learning, but it hasn't been, been easy. And I haven't heard one parent, not one parent has come up to me and said, wow, I want to start homeschooling now. <laughs> uh, and, and you implied also by saying that sometimes it's different to teach your own, that perhaps you guys have had your own challenges at home, despite the fact that you've had all these years of experience as a teacher. Oh, I can tell you the O'Donnell House, <laughs> yes, I can, I can assure you I am no different. Transitioning now to the huge economic challenges that the state faces $54 billion deficit. Um, could you give us a cliff note version for parents out there as to what can they expect uh, in terms of cutting of fund, funding for K through 12 schools? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's devastating. The numbers we're seeing right now are devastating. It's going to be a very difficult task. We will do it. We will have a balanced budget but it will hurt students. It will hurt the state of California in the long term. It will damage our economy in the long term if we do not have an adequately funded education system. So I'm doing all I can to fend off those cuts, but I'm also a realist to know that we're going to have to do our part on the education front. I don't want to do my part, 
but it is my job to ensure that we do our part so that we can balance the state budget. We're looking at about a $15 billion shortfall uh, on the education front. It's uh, $6.5 billion to the local control funding formula. That's the per-student funding formula in the state of California. We're seeing cuts in programs like career technical education, which I think is so, so important for our students. And, you know, as a high school teacher, I saw many students fall off the path of high school success because the career technical vocational education was cut. And that also speaks to what our economy needs. Those, are, those kids are getting prepared for jobs. Our economy uh, uh, needs, needs filled skilled labor. So the long-term uh, impact of, of, of cutting school funding is significant, and every Californian will, f- will feel it, whether they have a child or not. So we're doing what we can to patch up this hole. It's not pretty. It will be painful, but we are going to, 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 to have a budget by probably June 15th-ish. Now, the governor emphasized a few times that there were some items written onto the May revised budget that had specific language to go away if the federal government did what many of us believe it is their responsibility to uh, provide some funding for some of the states that are hurt the most. If the federal government does what they need to do, what kind of an impact would it have on these potential cuts? So the way the governor proposes that the budget be set up is that we pass a budget with significant cuts. And I mean significant cuts. But that those cuts would be clawed back, pulled back, if the federal government comes in with money to backfill our losses, uh, specifically on the education front. I am very supportive of the federal government taking action to support uh, schools across the country, quite frankly. This is a long-term investment that we need to make today and recognize that if we let our schools If we let school funding drop significantly, so too will student achievement. What can the legislature do to put some pressure, if anything? I can tell you what I've done. Uh, I've called my own congressman individually last week and said, hey, we need help. We need help. And, uh, you know, and I was even pretty clear in my message that I, 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 you know, I know they want to do a lot of things, and I'm sure all these things are important, but right now it's about schools. Right now it's about education. Right now it's about the future of, uh, of our children, and thus the state of California. And we need them to respond to the educational crisis that is creeping up across the United States in a very immediate and specific fashion now. And I get that there's going to be push and pull on many things in that budget, but I would hope that in Washington, D.C., both parties could agree to at least this component of it and move it forward now. What do you think people like myself and others can do, parents, uh, there's many of us in the state. What, what would you suggest to, to try to help in whichever way we can? Well, I would say educate and activate. Uh, don't agonize, organize. Uh, and very simply, what does that mean? Get a grasp of the issue. Read a couple newspaper articles. Send an email off to your member of Congress and also call your member of Congress. Okay? Don't, just send, don't just let it go with an email. Call. Try and meet with your Congress member via phone, whatever it may be and let them know how important this issue is to you, because ultimately it's important to your child's future. We talked about the closures, we talked about the financing, but in the midst of all of it, um, we're talking about reopening. How, how are we going to do that? Uh, it's not going to be easy. Uh, it's going to require a lot of things to happen. Some are unknowns. With regard to the reopening, I think there's a lot of unknowns there, and it's going to be disparate across the state of California, and quite frankly, it should be. Why? Because we're such a diverse state, certainly in people, but also in geography. 
Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I believe there's already, there's still a school that actually, as I understand it, still remains open in the state of California because it can, because it is so isolated from the general communities or from, from larger communities. But again, it's going to look different in different districts across the state. Um, we're going to need to take into, certainly, into account certainly health and safety, but I'm a firm believer in local control. We're going to need to make sure that there's adequate PPE for all school members, you know, all, all persons at a school. Uh, social distancing will probably be part of local requirements. Uh, we're going to have to look at the school schedules. Are we going to go back to some type of multi-track or some hybrid schedule where you go three days one week, two days the next, and half the other student, the half of the school goes the other days? I don't know. We're going to have to take a look at that. Um, and what what do school districts do if a student is or staff member tests positive? What are the protocols associated with that? What about sports? Do some school districts practice during the summer where others don't? You know, C, um, you know, CIF will have to weigh in on that. But we're going to have to talk about the continuity of instruction. What happens if we pop back into a pandemic period where we stop going to school? We need to ensure that a transition next time is much uh, smoother. How do we interact with parents who are afraid to send their children to school? I've heard estimates that as many as 20% of parents will not send their child back to school. So that, again, means some type of distance learning some type of hybrid model do schools get paid for that well that's going to require some legislation uh again sufficient equipment for students to learn the logistics associated with that computer equipment connectivity is an issue uh, and also connectivity and that type of equipment and student interaction is going to be continue to be an issue it's a long-term question we're going to have to grapple with at the state level so there's more issues than that but again it's going to boil down to from my perspective the Sacramento can give guidance, but it shouldn't do too many mandates because it's going to look different in Modoc County than it does from very urban Los Angeles. Thank you, Assemblymember O'Donnell. Assemblymember Christina Garcia, a math teacher prior to being elected to the State Assembly, represents an area of Los Angeles where many of the school districts were already struggling. Assemblymember, thank you for joining us. We're here to talk about education and connectivity but let's start with your overall impression of the impact the coronavirus crisis is having on our schools. You know, there was already a lot of inequities out there in our in our educational system. A lot of students who we are failing, right? I think as, as a state, we make a promise to help all students meet their potential through the educational system. But as a teacher, I know that that's not always how it works out, even if that's our desire. Limitations with time, with resources, having too many students in the classroom. Uh, but I think those inequities are even more magnified because suddenly we have students who don't have connectivity. Either they don't have a device at home or they don't have Internet or they're sharing a device with their siblings. Uh, then I just think the adjustment, right? I think we were all socializing learners in a way and now we have to get used to this new way and finding a new way to connect with our students. And so much of education has to do with being able to personally connect with their students. And you build a certain, especially with math, you build a certain level of trust with them. Uh, and so that's that's challenging. Um, I think what's hard is that there's also all this uncertainty. What does it mean for their school year, right? Is we know they're not getting, they're not learning everything they're supposed to learn. How does, what does that mean now? And so I think there's just a lot of uncertainty for them, for their parents, their parents having to step in and supplement the role that the teacher does. Uh, and so I think the digital divide is a piece of the puzzle, but just the reality of how you implement this is just, it's just hard for everyone, including parents, right? Parents who are trying to work and still have to be the hands-on, like, partners with the teachers to, to implement stuff. 
uh, is, is really challenging. Now, if we need them to get supplies to do a project, before I would have them all in a classroom for them. Like now the, the parent has to go figure that out quickly for us. And that's just one little example of just how we have a partnership with these parents, but it's also an adjustment for them along the way. Assembly member, connectivity is a huge problem for many students in school districts. Is it the biggest problem, though, facing schools during this pandemic? It's not the biggest problem because I could eventually figure out how to give everyone a tablet of some sort, right, and then a hotspot of some sort. And so I feel like that's what we have been talking about because it's the easiest one for us to solve, even though it's still pretty large and costly. Uh, and convincing students to log on regularly still takes, you know, something. I think the hard part is... What about the child who lives at home with five other siblings and they don't have a quiet space to stop and think, right? What about the kid who relied on the emotional support from something outside their household because there's trauma or abuse at home uh, and school provided that for them? What about the kid that needed the security that they were guaranteed a meal no matter what and that's been taken away from them? Uh, even though school districts are trying to find a way to connect the stuff. And so for you to learn, it's not just about having a device connection. It's not just about the teacher having a lesson plan. There's a lot of other interpersonal things that happen that the student, you know, needs in order to thrive, right? We need to think about the kids holistically. And so I think, you know, what do you tell the kid, like going to the bathroom and have a little bit of quiet time? Or what do you tell the family that has four kids and they have one device for everybody and they do have connectivity, right? Well, who gets to have their homework first or their lessons time first? And what if, you know, everyone, every teacher has this at 10 in the morning, what do they all do, right? Who gets to pick and choose when that happens? Or your Wi-Fi isn't strong enough to hold all the devices at once, right? And you're also trying to share space with the parent working from home. Uh, or your parent is essential and they're working. And so who's there to help you with the homeschooling? Uh, and so I think that the connectivity is one that we all connect to because physically we understand it and we can figure, figure that problem out. These other pieces are a lot harder, you know, for, for us. But I think these other pieces are even more important that we need to solve. The state is facing a massive deficit of an estimated $54 billion. How concerned are you the economic problems will result in cutbacks to school funding? Definitely the budget's a big concern. Um, school districts are taking cuts, right? Our, our cities are taking cuts. Uh, the state's seeing cuts. So we're going to see less money for our schools. There's a lot of these one-time upfront costs out there that we need to figure out how we fill in. And a lot of times we say, well, some parents could pay for that extra themselves, right? But we have a lot of parents who can't. And so it is a big issue because we have the pie is only so big, right? It's a pie that's shrinking. And so where do we take it away? Do we take it away from other safety nets, right? Or do, you know, are there certain tax credits that we take away, but does that depress the economy and trying to grow that economy? And so definitely we have a big problem. I think, I think we need to, for a second, think about the upfront cost, but then the long-term savings and the long-term investment in this generation of students so that we don't lose a generation, right? I think when we don't do these investments now, then we are saying we're comfortable losing a generation of students. Assemblymember, is there legislation pending or that you want to see introduced that you hope will provide assistance to our schools? My biggest focus right now is on the budget and how we are uh, distributing dollars and how we're making sure that we have some accountability and oversight, but at the same time, creating some flexibility at the local level. So for me, it's more like, how do we use, how do I make sure dollars are being distributed to match the reality? And for me, that's through the budget and not necessarily through legislation. I think through legislation, I'm going to be tracking what we're doing out there in space, but I think you have to at some point give some basic directions, but allow the local school districts to take action. They're going to be a little bit better to figure out what fits for them. Before we let you go, as a math teacher, any advice for the parents who are struggling through this new era of education? 
Um, I mean, I would just say for the parents listening out there, and I've given this advice. I have friends who call me who are not teachers. Uh, I have teachers that call me that are friends. Uh, and we, we also have to give ourselves a little bit of space. And we're not going to have it all figured out, but take advantage of the moment to create some happy memories with your kids. The last thing you want them to do is create even more trauma to the learning process out there. And it's hard. It's hard for a lot of people. And allow yourself to believe that and accept that and do your best. Uh, and that we're going to have to figure this out over a couple of years uh, together. Thank you so much, Assemblymember Garcia. Assemblymember Rebecca Bauer-Cahan is the author of legislation to boost the connectivity of students statewide. Assemblymember, thank you so much for your time. So obviously, uh, we wanted to chat with you after we saw the release about your legislation, AB 2626, and precisely we're talking about um, K-12 and all the stuff that we're having to deal with right now. And we wanted to talk about connectivity and who better than the author then of this legislation. So one in five students in California don't have the kind of access that is needed uh, to live in the environment in which we live now. How much of a concern was that? Was that a personal concern that you have been exposed to because of your area or did somebody bring it up to you or how, how did it come about? You know, as you know, I'm a mom of three school-aged children. My kids are in kindergarten, um, second and fourth grade. And so I am experiencing distance learning right at home with the rest of the Californians that are doing it. And I see how much they need, right? They each need their own device because their Zoom meetings are all at the same time. They need Wi-Fi to stay connected and submit assignments and everything else. And they're privileged enough to have that. And knowing everything it takes and knowing the state of California, we need to make sure that we don't have a digital divide, that the equity gap that already exists in education doesn't get wider because they don't they lack the basic resources to get the education that we're able to provide right now. And from what I understand, you guys have been thinking about this legislation prior to the pandemic. That's right. So AB 2626 was introduced before the pandemic, really focused on education funding. It's an issue I'm super passionate about and just thought deeply about how we get our schools to a better place when it comes to funding. And that was before the cuts that they're about to experience with this year's budget. And so we had introduced this bill, which um, would have, it was a bit broader, but would have provide tax relief to our schools uh, back in January. And then as things shifted, um, Assemblymember Burke, who is chair of the Revenue Tax Committee where this bill was sitting and also sits on the Digital Divide Task Force, reached out about my bill and said, I think this could be a way that we bridge some of this digital divide. Would you work with me to narrow the bill and really focus on those 1.2 million California students who don't have the devices they need to learn right now? Does this legislation have an urgency clause and, and or ultimately, I guess the question is, how quickly could it be applied? Should it sail successfully? So it doesn't currently have an urgency clause, but it is something we're considering. It passed through Revintax with unanimous bipartisan support. Um, and so really looking at can we get this to our schools faster is the next question that I think we will ask, seeing what broad support we were able to get in committee um, so that it can be applicable as soon as possible. Currently, the bill doesn't have an urgency, so it wouldn't apply to any purchases prior to January 1st, 2021. One of the school board members that we talked to also mentioned that... Uh the lack of connectivity, the digital divide, and other issues are going to make this learning gap even worse among, you know, already hurting communities and African-American communities, immigrant communities. I think that's right. We know that there was an achievement gap before the pandemic, 
right? And the achievement gap has not gone away, but the inability for kids to connect and get be with their teachers on these um, devices or using Wi-Fi is gonna make that gap even broader. And that should be the goal of the legislature and the governor and the superintendent of schools to work together to make sure that achievement gap is narrowed as much as possible. And hopefully this bill is a small step in that direction. Do you think that uh, schools, just as an example of the rest of society, is just not going to operate the same anymore? And perhaps after we get through this crisis, it will be for the better. And how much of a role in that does um, bridging the digital divide play? That's a great question. You know, as a mom who is home working as a legislator on many days with three children learning in my house, I'm ready to get them back to school like every other school-aged parent. Um, But, you know, there are benefits to this, right? Kids learn differently. And this has provided a very different way for kids to learn. And for some kids, I bet that's been a benefit, right? They've really been able to engage in a way that they weren't when they were in the classroom. Um, But I do think there is something so fundamental about the connection, both of the students and the ability to get the social emotional learning they get from being together every day, all day, Um, but also the connection with their teacher and with their educators that is critical. So we do need to get them back into their schools. But to your point, can we continue to use these devices and these tools that we've created to um, bridge that achievement gap and get more kids learning in more ways? Absolutely. We can always be more creative. I often talk about how I grew up in the California public schools and now my kids are in the California public schools and very little has changed. Despite the fact that when I was in school, there were no cell phones, there was no internet, things were very different. And yet education looks really, really similar. And so we do need to start thinking about the 21st century we live in and how we educate kids to really embrace it and be ready for the workforce that they're going to enter. So I think this is a piece of that for sure. And thank you for opening the door about homeschooling. You have three, so I admire you. I have just one four-year-old. And uh, Pat O'Donnell, as you well know, your colleague, the chair of education, was a former teacher. He was saying that he has to deal with that too, high school age kids. And he says that he's probably not going to hear too many parents saying, oh, I can't wait to continue to homeschool. <laughs> so That's right. I would agree with that statement. I'm definitely ready for them. I appreciate their teachers. I've always appreciated their teachers, but I think we all appreciate teachers even more now that we've been doing it alongside them for months. Um, you know, we're in the midst of one of the worst uh, fiscal crises in the state of California, $54 billion. Um How important do you think is to have the federal government do what many of us believe is their responsibility to backfill? And do you embrace or what are your thoughts about what they say is a bailout of states? Yeah, I don't think it's a bailout. I think it's a partnership, right? We pay federal taxes. You and I do as two all Californians. And this is part of what it means to be a partner in this recovery. Um, The state is doing everything we can and will do, but we need them to partner with us to ensure that our children don't suffer. And I often talk about how our budget should always, whether it be good times or bad times, be a reflection of our values. And our children are our future, and they deserve an education that will prepare them for that future. And we can't forget them. And and that's the, the, the sad irony, too, right, that like you, many people across the state are valuing even more the work of teachers, educators, staff, um, And now we're faced with perhaps eliminating some of those jobs or cutting back services to those children and families because it's not just education, but it's the meals and all that stuff. Um, How difficult is it the job for you guys to try to balance that and to somehow move us forward? 
You know, I, I'm going to say it again. I think it's about priorities. And for me, education is at the top of my list of priorities. And so I think that we need to do everything we can not to cut. I happen to represent some of the lowest funded districts in the state. My children are in one of the bottom five school funded school districts in the state. And I see every day how hard our school district and our teachers and the staff work to make it work with so little funding. And the idea that it would be less next year is just devastating. Um, So we have to continue to provide quality education to Californians. And that means doing everything we can to ensure we cut as little as possible from our schools. And to conclude, what, what are the next steps for you, for your legislation? Uh, uh, how how quickly are you hopeful that this is going to to move in this new era of legislating? <laughs> so it's off to appropriations next. Um, so it is waiting there. I sit on the appropriations committee, so I'm excited to vote for it again. Um, and then we will move it to the floor. And again, we're considering putting that urgency clause on it so we can move it through and get schools this funding um, to give them a little more relief in this challenging time for them. Assemblymember, thank you so much for your time, especially at the very last minute, but we wanted to make sure to include your legislation. No, thank you. And thanks for putting this out there. I think the more we talk about the urgent need to support our students, the better. Thank you to assembly members O'Donnell, Garcia, and Bauer Cahan, and Oak Grove's Chris Hoffman and Bobby Singh Allen for taking the time to talk with us. I'm Pablo Espinosa with Look West. Thank you for listening. Stay safe. The Look West podcast is produced by the California Assembly Democrats. Please subscribe and rate this show wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And when you think of California and politics, remember to look west.